0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Behind the Business podcast. My music industry podcast where I talk to a wonderful array of different people in the music industry uh, that I have met along my merry path. Um, this week's episode is with Andy Ray. Um, One of the founding um, members, founding people of the 2000 Trees Music Festival um, out west, where I'm currently located these days. Um, This episode was recorded in May of last year. We spoke about 2000 Trees, about his work in the events industry, and also about his path into where and what he is doing now he is not someone who came from a particularly music specific background so he's one of those interesting people that found himself in and around the music business without wanting to or or really focusing on it when he was a lot younger Um, He's got some great stuff to say about education as well, so he's always a good ear uh, for those people who are interested in the events industry. Um, As I mentioned, this pod was recorded in May, which was actually before the 2018 2000 Trees Festival, Um, and so it talks a lot about stuff that has subsequently happened, and actually I got the opportunity to talk to him again, um, to just get a little bit of feedback, a little bit of information about how some of the things went that he talks about. So listen for that at the very end. Anyway, enough of me waffling on. Um, Here's my talk with Andy Ray. Cheers. (music) Cheers. How are things going with all the various festivals you've got coming up?
1: Really good. Yeah? Two Thousand Trees is up on ticket sales and ultimately that allows us to keep having fun. Um, It is a business at the end of the day, it has to sustain itself um, and uh, things are going in all the right directions. But that allows me to enjoy the bands that we've booked, um, to build a really nice chill out area for people to do some fun things on the site that we haven't done before. And just to build a really nice atmosphere at the event, which is
0: part of the 2003's experience. Is it kind of done and dusted? It just needs to be put into the field now? Or are there still things to (laughs) iron out?
1: I was working until midnight all of last week on on the ironing out. Okay. There's hundreds of things. Um, It's hard to explain how many times an, uh, an email will come from a trader asking a
0: question. Um, so it's, it's July, yeah. so it's about a month and a six, half six away? Six weeks yesterday. So what is there still to be ironed out six uh, weeks away from when it actually starts? <laughs> um, a lot of it
1: is the systems and procedures in place for our teams, building our teams. A lot of our volunteers come from BIM and other student bases um, because they want to get work experience at festivals. Mm-hmm. And so it's getting those teams in place. Um, it's making sure that our to-do list, which has hundreds of things a day on it for the setup week, is all ready. It's hard. To, it's hard to say. It's this. It's this thing. It's more of a, a collection of hundreds of little jobs, little things, little answering of questions that get us closer to the event. You're right. That this is our twelfth year. There's a list. There's a to-do list that's got hundreds of jobs on it. Yeah. That we've been doing for years, and we've got quite good at that. But every year there are new things. For example, this year, uh, we've gone cashless. Okay. So So that's using
0: cards and Apple and Android Pay and stuff like that? No, on your
1: wristband you get a little RFID microchip. Okay. And everything is paid for via that, and you top up credit to that chip. And uh, that means that all of our traders are no longer handling cash. We now have a, a really transparent relationship with how much money they make. But more importantly it's post it's the way it's one hundred percent the way the industry is going yeah, yeah. and we just said let's get on board and I've been planning it for about two or three years
0: okay is that y- the usual length of time it takes to have an idea and then implement it into a <laughs> festival of that size no, that's the length of time it takes to get
1: all six of the business partners at two thousand trees to agree <laughs> okay <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so if it was just me we'd have probably implemented it at least a year ago, possibly two, but there are lots of ramifications for doing this, There's mm-hmm. knock-on effects, if you like, that need to be discovered. And um, I've just spent the last six months just working on this every week to make sure that it doesn't flop. You know, we all remember what happened to download because they introduced something similar that was reliant on Wi-Fi. Our system isn't. And um, it's Learn totally, from the early adopters. Uh, yeah, the early adopters made the mistakes. But the, that's, that memory is still five or six years on. In, in the memories of, of the users, the consumers. Yeah. I still remember it, and I still, it took me a couple of years to get over that fear, even though the partner that we're using said, we don't do it like that. So um, yeah, that was catastrophic, and it definitely set back the industry for this mm-hmm. um, a few years, but there's no doubt, younger consumers are actually enjoying it, and using it, and happy with it. I think it's probably
0: more our reluctance than um, many of our customers. So just for, for those of us who don't quite understand what you're going on about <laughs> the cashless idea is it's a top up system so can that be topped up via a phone or things like that or do you actually have to queue up and go to a a point to well to do it just as a little sideline apparently this
1: microchip is safer than credit cards magnetic strips and uh, any other it's it's military grade okay you take a supercomputer something like 276,000 years to crack so I'm not going to try that no uh, that chip holds all of the cash information so you can top it up at with cash at the event ironically by going cashless we might end up having to deal with a lot more cash well that's what I was thinking of is that
0: <laughs> it sounds like an amazing idea going cashless which means that Queuing time could be dropped, and things like that. you'd literally just go, oh, "I have one of those and then mm. swipe in but if it's a if it's not a kind of if it's not attached to a a card number and it effectively charges a card as you go, but instead it relies on you topping it up. Is there going to be massive queues of people waiting to top up their cards or their their cashless <laughs> thing, or is it something that they can just sit at their tent and do? via their phone and via their yeah. on, online banking. Yeah, so we have got Wi-Fi like on
1: site, and there, there, there are definitely places where the Wi-Fi kicks in and updates and syncs it all, um, as you would with any phone. That yeah. You suddenly get Wi-Fi and then it starts buzzing with all of your notifications. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can top up in advance, and what we are trying to get people to do is to auto-top up in advance. That means, like an Oyster card, you set up, you maybe put £20 credit on, and then when it drops below whatever figure you choose, let's say ten pounds, um, or let's say you get to the bar you haven't got enough, it auto tops up with more credit, like an Oyster card. So you okay. never, you never have to queue. Got you. You just top up. Alternative option is if you have a fear of big data and you don't want your details and you don't want to register online, mm-hmm. and there are customers like
0: that. Well, it's a big thing. You can still recently with all the yeah. Um, the emails going round about yeah. are you happy with us keeping information from we're not working up? with Cambridge Analytica just to
1: let reassure everyone okay. um, but yeah it's uh, it, it's closed loop technology um, I don't know why I throw that in I just like that phrase I don't mm-hmm. really know what it means but that's not my job and um, it means that you can top up sort of an- anonymously as you go using cash using your credit card using whatever okay. um, and so you'd have to queue I mean I'm firmly of the view that if I never have to queue and I can just top up and press beep and, and get my beer. That is so easy. Yeah, yeah. And also, if you lose your wallet, that's it. That's gone, mm-hmm. unfortunately. If you lose your wristband, the moment you go and say, I've lost my wristband, we can cancel that credit and ship it to another wristband so you get to retain the credit. Mm-hmm. So that is another advantage. Yeah. Um, it's not for everyone. I'm not trying to, I'm not like preaching to the, con- I'm not trying to convert everyone to this, but we are doing it mm-hmm. and it's scary that not everyone might agree that it's a good thing
0: well i was going to ask someone who's firmly in the live music scene live music area of the music industry um there's an awful lot of new technologies and this sort of stuff going on throughout not just in festivals is it is it moving in a positive way is all this sort of stuff going to stop touting obviously not overnight but is it all going to kind of is it, is it going to help the industry? That's a tough question. I mean, I guess it. the answer is, where
1: are we shifting the burden? Um, and what we're doing in terms of cashless is making it really difficult for anyone to steal credit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes consumers safer. Um, and they don't have to give out data. That's OK. Um, I guess the other thing at the moment is GDPR has come in, so you're going to, re- as a consumer, you're going to receive a lot less emails from people marketing and selling to you, and what we do with that data. Um, ticket touts is a big one.
0: I obviously there's steps to this. This yeah. is just this isn't the the cure for everything. I think but technology
1: has the answers. I don't know exactly what they are, but there are companies out there doing some really good work on secondary ticketing
0: because is that the next step for a, for a festival like yours is kind of working out a way to combat secondary ticketing and ticket t- I mean, do you, I'm mean, i guessing you don't benefit from secondary ticketing no at it's, all it's um, so not well, like you can sell your own tickets secondary do you or no we what, don't no exactly no. I mean I think you know because there's been artists
1: been, so on both sides there's artists who have secondary ticketed sold their own tickets well there
0: is a market for it and it has to be a thing because not everybody can go to shows and you should be able to resell your ticket it shouldn't be a a, you shouldn't be penalized for not being able to go or anything like that but then on the flip side is that and I was reading this morning is that there's a lot of people that you know want to go to a show and within minutes it's sold out mainly because of people not even thinking of going to shows yeah, which buying is wrong. tickets and yeah. then flogging them for double, triple, quadruple the price that's wrong um, how we stop it, I don't have the answers <laughs> I don't think anybody does um, Something like that. Do you go, are you a ILMCE do you word, go it? to the International Live Music Conference? I haven't been for a while because that was always the, the key chat every year <laughs> The how do we stop secondary ticketing? we I become mean, secondary ticketing I still <laughs> have a
1: pristine Glastonbury ticket my wife, because she was finishing her PhD and couldn't go. And so I bought the two tickets and you have your photo and your individual ID on there. Mm-hmm. And so there's no way I could sell that. Mm. I suppose I could, in theory, have posted a picture and said, does anyone look like this person? Would you like a ticket to it? It narrows it down a little <laughs> bit, who you can sell it to. Um, I had no intention. I, for some reason, I, th- I, I felt at the time that would be worth a fortune, an unused Glastonbury ticket. Maybe it will be. Uh, probably not, but... <laughs>
0: Depends um, how famous you are. That,
1: that's the sort of level that we're talking about where we now need to know who every individual is that's purchased a ticket and they are the person that goes or is, is present. But you know, what happens when somebody buys six tickets to the festival and they all turn
0: up individually on different days? Well, that's the thing it's, it's paperless, is the best way possible. How that works, again, who knows? Mm. <laughs> You mentioned a minute ago that you, you said the phrase "That's not my job." <laughs> what is what is your job when it uh-huh. comes to two thousand trees and up tangent? So um,
1: when we started this, me and five friends were music fans who went to a festival and had a really great experience watching the bands and a really terrible experience enjoying the festival from being treated like children by the security, not being able to take your Drinks into the arena, um, other people in the in the campsites, and on and on it goes. I remember having a really grey, they claimed it was pork uh, roll. <laughs> um, I mean, God only knows. When was, was this? Um, 2006 was the last year I went to. <laughs> uh, from what I hear, nothing's changed. If, if anything, it's got worse. And so we sat there, you know, around a campfire, um, automatically getting annoyance from other people. Um, customers because we had a campfire. You know, we were slightly, you know, mid twenties and mm-hmm. just wanting to make the best of the festival experience. And that's not a thing. It's cheap, cheerful. It's expensive to buy a ticket, but you are you're forced to do things their way, and it's it just doesn't feel free or fun. Apart from those moments that spine tingling when you're watching the bands you love and you're collectively in a massive audience of a huge band. That yeah, that yeah. they've got right. Um, so we said. What are we doing? Why, why don't we just start one? And that was the start of 2003, and the year later, 2007, was our first festival. So, You're making it sound rather simple to just start a festival, and I'm it's guessing really, it's not. Well, I, every student I teach at BIM who has any lecture, even if it's one lecture in event management, I had more experience than we had collectively right. as a group. We were six friends with jobs that didn't relate to the music industry. And we said, let's just give it a go. How hard can it be? It was, a, it was an exercise in, this can't be that hard, can it? And then you realize and you learn how hard it is by doing it. It's a very practical vocation. So to start with, we sat around a, camp, uh, not a campfire. We had those discussions. Then we came together in January and had a blank sheet of paper and said, how do you, what do we need for a festival? It was really 101 basic stuff. We need a stage, we need this, we need that. So what were your backgrounds? There were six of you with backgrounds in... Yeah, I was a journalist on a daily newspaper. Right. Uh, Another guy designed furniture. Um, There was a salesman uh, in medicine, medical drugs. Um, One guy sells uh, battery parts globally from his dad's company. Another guy's a lawyer. The other guy was an internal auditor. Okay. So there's a good mix of legal, sales, marketing, finance, design, if you look at it in those basic yeah. terms. And that's what we did. We sort of said, well, you know, I'm a journalist, I can write, I'm, I'm uh, good at sort of the marketing side of things, I'll, I'll focus on that a bit. Okay. And then one guy uh, who is a, a sort of influencer, our tastemaker in terms of music, when we used to go to Reading, he'd have a spreadsheet and we'd all follow the bands that he'd recommended and listened to, and so on and so on. So, we, we fell into and an negotiated for ourselves a, lo- a whole range of roles. And then it grew into oh, we also need to do this and we also need to do this. And so um, that was then. Mm-hmm. Here we are a decade or so later. Mm. And I, I still focus on the PR and marketing. I look after the traders during the event and the, the entrances. So, getting everyone in and out of the site and um, making sure all the traders have got no problems and the press and PR. And now, this sort of um, chill out area making the festival better uh, at the event, and also making sure the cashless operation this year works.
0: So it's still very much, uh, it's run like an independent, it would is. be. It's very much a, uh, oh, well, we're getting bigger, I guess I'll take that extra thing on myself, and you can take that yeah. extra thing on yourself as opposed to getting more and more people in and getting a, a bit more corporate I guess and all that yeah, sort no, of stuff. Yeah, no it's definitely it's
1: the six of us still in charge. Um, as I say in the early days we'd all listen to I remember having piles of CDs in genres going right we're going we've got 10 we maybe pick one or two from this pile we've got 10 of these we'll pick one and we listened to the CDs and picked the artist and argued over which artists we should put. It was ridiculously un um, sophisticated. <laughs> but is anything that sophisticated I mean is it
0: that much different now well I don't it's get involved not... in
1: booking the bands so much anymore right. Right. We, we've evolved into our own little areas and moved away from everybody getting involved in everything
0: because that was just too chaotic ok it's interesting yeah. that nobody that you don't have any say at all in... if, if I want to book a band I have a say right. if I really
1: want to get about if I, if I hear some new bands and I really think that they should be on the bill I have a say, if I want it. It's like a, I wouldn't call it a veto, it's the opposite, it's a, it's a, a vote, I can, I can yeah. have an influence, but less so than, than before, because we trust the guy who was so interested in the music as a music fan to book us the best lineup, and he knows a lot more about it than I do now. So we've, we've honed our skills and, and separated our skills into, there's just so much to do, to be
0: honest. From from someone who I guess looks at festivals as a punter, as opposed to someone who runs and works on them, how have they evolved in the past? You know, since your last time, of are you talking about yourself there?
1: Because I would also put us into that bracket. So yes, we run a festival and we started it from scratch. But we're still, I still definitely feel like a music fan who goes to gigs
0: to watch bands. I still feel like that same okay person. Okay, but no, but we've. As someone who puts one on okay. and is very more involved in the day-to-day operation of of one, as is, is that there's an awful lot more of them now than there was in the mid two thousands when I last went to Reading regularly and all that sort of stuff. Is that problematic? Does that create different challenges? Is it you know when it comes to booking bands? Are you very aware of the niche that you're in? You can't really broaden the <laughs> horizons. You can't suddenly have a a dance stage just cropping up because your core fans need to be you know need to understand that this is where your niche lies or or does it present opportunities to do
1: that? it depends on your mindset i think um with a growth mindset you can explore making the festival better all of the time that's what i'm interested in is driving the festival forward in a competitive marketplace there's no doubt as by way of background there's um more festivals than ever before. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more upping of games Hi- from historical, let's just hire a field and put a big stage and everything will be all fine to the experience and really tailoring unique opportunities to um, make something memorable for people at festivals. Um, that's really good, that's healthy for the industry. And if you use the sort of um, rhetoric of only the strongest will survive or evolve to survive, that sort of stuff, evolve or die, Um, bigger festivals are having to make more of an effort to keep their customers happy. That is good for the consumer. Smaller festivals have a massive USP, which is the atmosphere, the intimate, fun, friendly, lack of queues, if nothing else, atmosphere that you you create in a small festival. So as long as we stay a small festival, we have that USP. Um, Specifically, a couple of things that have changed um, with regards to, let's say, band booking, our uh, exclusivity clauses have come in. So directors of corporations' sole legal responsibility are to make money for the mm-hmm. shareholders. We're not a PLC. So those big live nation-type corporations have one duty, and that's to make money for shareholders. And how they do that is they squeeze every, they squeeze out the competition. Yeah. So we've started to see exclusivity clauses on much smaller, much more numerous amounts of bands that maybe play on a tiny stage at lunchtime at a big festival whereas they might headline our festival and that is causing problem that okay. is deliberate so there are
0: mechanisms within the system
1: that can so be you're exploited by the powerful
0: genuinely finding that there's I mean less bands available if you don't get in there early enough interesting though um, y- yes but no so
1: we've now grown to a 10,000 plus festival and agents are starting to come to our festival and see, oh, right, they could play to four hundred people, two hundred people. So they they come to you at lunchtime uh, at a big festival. Or they could headline in front of five, six, seven thousand rock fans at this event mm-hmm. and be and it's a good notch to have headlined and to move on up. Yep. And that change has really swung in our favour the last couple of years. So yes, it's harder because bigger festivals are always squeezing mm-hmm. but equally we're fighting back and saying small festivals are better frankly, I know that sounds slightly arrogant but I just like the small s- the stuff you can get um, a, lot of people, a lot more people do yeah. nowadays I think. Um, and this is what I was saying, the point was us as organisers are still music fans first and foremost, we're not doing this to make profit for shareholders we're doing this because we love Mm-hmm. And so that is Theresa's USP, and, and many other small festivals like it. Um, and that has got to be a healthy thing for the industry. Um, apparently last year, 30 new festivals came, and 30 festivals folded. And that is really sad, and it could happen to us.
0: So, you know, nothing's permanent. Are the margins quite thin? Are you kind of walking a tightrope? Or are you, or do you feel like it's comfortable? let's, let's put it this way the music
1: industry has no solution for the digital revolution what seems to be happening is live is where money is being made in the music industry which has a massive knock on effect like, for example we've booked bands two years ago um, for under £500 that are now going out at tens of thousands right. um, based on two years of growth um, so the life cycle of bands is getting shorter there's more of them
0: So that's not necessarily because they're worth that much more in ticket sales. That's just the labels, the management who are working for them are going, we need to get as much out of this as possible because this is where the money is. Depends who you
1: talk to. (laughs) From a promoter's point of view, yes, I completely agree. Um, We're seeing the, the fees go up a lot faster than inflation. And sometimes it's, you know, we'll have that conversation with an agent. So why has that fee gone from x to y let's say 500 to 20,000 when it's been an off cycle year you haven't got any new material you're not touring you haven't got a new album you are basically the same band touring the same music as the previous year but the price has gone up massively yeah. what have you what has changed and obviously they've played more venues
0: built their audience and there, and there is that yeah i mean and, I, and no maybe, i mean you've got to understand that there's going to be a, a knock on and it's go, they're mm. going to increase in I guess, their value, yeah. but that much. And is it only the bands
1: um, that that
0: happens with, or are you finding that everything is because they're going, well, there's lots of well, there's lots of these now? Yeah, I think infrastructure-wise,
1: the, the stages and the fencing and the toilets, they do creep up with inflationary rises. Um, but not to the same level. But not to the s- I mean, you know, you're talking massive amounts of the bands. And this is the music industry trying to find a home for its income, its revenue mm-hmm. streams. And it's, at the moment, it's saying live. And the, uh, there's a lot of data to support this. A lot of my students are producing work that shows um, Generation Y, Millennials, are valuing the experience yeah. more than the product. Um,
0: exactly. Yeah. Is there a is there a size that you're aiming for for all these? Because you you've got two festivals specifically, um, Two Thousand Trees and Arctangent, and they're of a size. Actually, I should, I should correct you. I, oh, two
1: of the business partners from 2003 started Art Tangent, right. Um with a third person. I'm, okay. I'm not one of those two. So, although they're my best mates, and I spend 15 days in year one in a field helping them with every aspect okay, of Okay, so they're not like. like sister festivals or anything are, like that. They kind of are, yeah. Okay. It's, uh, and it's, they're, they're both rock genre. Yeah. But no, it's
0: not but are they, but So, are they of a size that you want to keep them at? I guess, or let's go with 2003s, well, or are you always looking to have 100 more people each
1: year? I think the nature of what we've just described, the costs going up, they only ever go in one direction. Mm-hmm. And um, part of the investment we've made over the last couple of years is bigger and better bands. The band budget has gone up quite a lot. Um, and what we, we realised a few years ago was the band budget has to go up to stay still. So if I wanted to book the same lineup year on year, exactly the same 150 bands the price would go up above a lot above inflation yeah. so to cope with that you need to grow yeah um, however that needs to be tempered with conflicting goal if you like of trying to stay small and friendly and intimate and, and keep that atmosphere. yeah and it's a question I get asked in every single interview how big are you gonna go um, so we have a license for 10,000 we're currently up at about seven and a half thousand people I think 10,000 would be comfortable for the site mm-hmm. at which point you then say what next um, I don't want to keep growing. Add I guess
0: that was the point that I was trying mm. to get at, is that I think there's a, some, some people would say that, yeah, we just want to get bigger and bigger and bigger, because why wouldn't you? And, mm. and you'd actually talk to some people, well, no, we want to get to a level, and this is us. this We are more than happy, more than capable to run a really, really solid festival, event, whatever it is, at this mm. size, and be the best at this I remember when Candle Calling, I went there on a stag do, maybe
1: eight years ago. They were at sort of ten to fifteen thousand, and they stayed there for a while. But they they grown, they doubled in size for sort of first five years of their life. Got to ten thousand, and then grew much more slowly to fifteen. They're now at twenty five. So something happened when they slowed down, and they said, "Okay, we need to explode this." and yeah. think it was mostly the lineup, and they they build a really family friendly
0: mm-hmm.
1: lineup, and. I don't know where they want to get to. I think they've sold out for the last two or three years, really, really early. So, okay. 25,000 is there. They've found their home, if yeah. you like. Um, I don't feel like 2000 has found its home yet. I feel like that 10,000 feel, would feel right for the site we've got. Mm-hmm. And it's a lovely site. So, maybe that would be us.
0: Yeah. <laughs> mentioned that music is not specifically your background you came from an English literature (laughs) journalism background yeah so talk about that side of things your time at university what did that do for you was it just something to do for three years or you know what did you get out of out of learning I learned some things (laughs) some were academic, some were life
1: mm-hmm. no, I think um, university is was for me and I think it's a universal truth, a chance to grow in a safe environment and that means getting away from your parents, learning how to cook, clean, wash do all the basics of growing up at the same time as being in this sheltered environment where you haven't got to earn money, mm-hmm. I mean yeah I had part time jobs but you get the point you're not out there doing what people who've left school have to do which is fend for themselves and earn as much money as possible, and so on. That comes later. Um, And at the same time, expanding your mind with these tutors who just talk to you about stuff that's really mind-blowing. Like,
0: I just learnt loads of big words, basically, as an English Lit graduate. Did you have a plan? Did you just go, I'm going to do this because I enjoy reading and writing? Or did you, like very few people, go, no, I'm going to go into... A particular field.
1: I remember having to do those personal statements for university and that forced you to come up with some sort of plan. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't believe it you have to write it. Um, I remember my it was my first uh, standing up to my parents if you like who wanted me to do law. I was quite academic. Right. I, would, I did English, maths and history A-levels. Okay. And. Uh, they wanted me to go into law, and I felt like I was too creative. I'd already dropped art, which was my best subject, because it wasn't academic enough for A-level, but I thought, hindsight's a wonderful thing, Mm. I'd have done it. Um, And I just said, no, I'm too creative, I want to do English Lit, and I love reading, I love that. Um, And then university just blew my mind with learning about people who knew loads of amazing stuff about books, and reading books, And, and I think I was a passionate reader as a kid, it just feels. And the more I think about it, the more I look back, I can see exactly why I went that route. It didn't feel right at the time because you were sort of saying going against your parents, going this is your best advice. Um, but now I would advise all students to do what's in their heart and go for mm-hmm. go for that because if you're happy and you enjoy what you do, it doesn't become a chore. And that's true of work as it is of study, as it is of a lifestyle.
0: I mean, did you did you know what PR was? No, no, when so that you
1: got personal statement said yeah. uh, I want to go into the media and it was just I'd, just I, the media yeah, something in the media <laughs> nice and I didn't know what that was it was a television I remember saying I want to read the news on television and my nice. school um, what were they called the sort of careers advisors yeah said well you know there's only about five people in the country get to do that And then Channel 5 happened. I was like, that's me. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Aim high, Channel 5. You never never give up. Um, And then it sort of evolved. There were people at university who were doing similar courses. Some were doing journalism. And I got interviewed for a radio journalist friend of mine's assignment. And that opened my eyes to, oh, the interviewing side's quite fun. I'd Mm -hmm. like to be on that side of the camera asking the questions. And so on and so on, and it sort of evolved in from the media into something more like journalism. I got some work experience after I graduated It was a nice week off from the factory I was working in to pay the pay off the debts. Um, I then got a job on a local weekly paper and did that for six months, then got a training scheme and did three years uh no sorry yeah three years of um working for the newspaper. It was like a footballer you signed a three year contract six months of that was getting a um Journalism qualification mm-hmm. and 18 months like a portfolio of evidence to say well I've done all of these skills and then yeah I was just got promoted and and carried on working in journalism on daily papers got up to a news editor and then realized that I either had to go to London to the Nationals or to somewhere else to do something amazing or think about other things and then we started the festival in 2006 when I was 26 or something and uh, That inspired me to totally change everything and think, oh, this is fun. I got offered a job in PR. I did PR for five years for two different clients. In-house stuff? Yeah. Uh, Well, we were an agency.
0: Okay. So um, uh, our clients would pay us to do a whole range of stuff. And was that media PR or was that kind of standard, everyday, corporate... That sort of stuff. What you might call a multi-service agency.
1: Okay. So I was focusing more on the PR and writing the press release and dealing with the media and getting editorial coverage, mm-hmm. um, dealing with the journalists like I used to be. So I had that um, poacher turn gamekeeper mentality for a while. But then I remember joining Facebook in 2007 and suddenly social media was born and our agency had to then cope with digital marketing. And I was writing all sorts of thi- I was just a good copywriter. So I was writing not just press releases, but adverts and coming up with ideas. I love that creativity where you're in a meeting and just mm-hmm. going, oh, what are we going to do for this client? Oh, well, they this, what about that? And it, before you know, you've got a mood board of, of ideas for
0: the creative that you then pitch. So that was fun. Um, Who are the clients at this stage? You don't oh need man. to name names, but the, the type of companies, businesses, that sort of thing, all sorts of things. So in the latter times
1: it was more healthcare. Right. So, maybe veterinary and maybe human health. Okay, so we're still <coughs> not,
0: I mean, you've got the festival. Still not music. Festivals no. over here, and that's yeah. your creative music industry thing over here, and then you're yeah. writing press releases for, for vets. And restaurants. And restaurants. And oh, okay. uh, I mean, all sorts of different industries. Anyone who wanted PR. Mm-hmm.
1: The PR, the core skills of public relations were there. And um, being an agency, we had access to the software that had the lists of the media, um, which is cool. So that, that was good, and then I decided to quit in, uh, in 2012, had a big year, got married. We had an extended honeymoon, traveling around the world for nine months. So and I had this idea that I was going to keep doing the PR but get more into events. Okay. And I came back in 2013, so this is now five years into my self-employment venture. Um, I teach at, uh, uh, in event management here mm-hmm. at BIM. I um, have PR clients still. Um had dabbled with a few PR clients that were smaller, small businesses and helping them. And that um, was an adventure or a series of adventures. actually sacked a client, which was fun. It's the first, <laughs> first time I've done that. It's right. really, really satisfying, but they were annoying.
0: Have you moved since setting up <coughs> your own company, Red Tarn? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Is, uh, are the clients more entertainment media focused or is it still very much kind of broad speaking I'm trying to get PR into more ad- adventure PR so
1: outdoorsy stuff right Um, bikes and yeah anything
0: like that so that that you've never been me. interested in doing PR for upcoming ac- acts and artists and well musical or so films or anything like that yeah
1: so I'm not not massively okay. I mean I do the PR for 2000 trees yeah, yeah Um so that has always been writing press releases about our festival and uh, and and music, uh, upcoming bands that we've booked. It was definitely music PR, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, th- it's nice to have a, s- a series of different things. And who knows where that's
0: gonna go at the moment. You're looking to be eclectic, is you know, I guess, rather than going, I'm gonna be niche and just be PR for yeah. R&B artists yeah. and stuff like that. Or, or
1: Gloucestershire restaurants. I mean, just yeah. can't imagine it. So yeah, I mean, I'm not actively looking for more clients at the moment, which is a scary
0: proposition, but I just don't have the time. But it's good um, that it got Yeah. You've said five years into a into but, a new adventure. Yeah. You've kind of Well the real the real exciting thing. You've about beaten that. the boss at the end <laughs> and now you're in just the, the nice bit where all the, the camera screams around. and Yeah.
1: But the the real exciting thing about that, that change was getting events work so I wanted to become an event manager right. as, alongside the PR and the writing which I'd done for so many years and I now work at nine events a year I try and do one a month because it's a week away
0: mm-hmm.
1: from my family and things um, and uh, that, that's been really exciting and, and again it's grown where I just go and do whatever's needed at, at an event
0: um, So this isn't specifically do the PR No this is much misses. more standing in a field with a radio Managing, Making sure everybody's yeah. in the right place at the right time.
1: So uh, one festival, it's getting sixty thousand people in and out every day, with a team of like two hundred people on the entrances, and the other, it's running a campsite. Um, I venue manage for some some of the festivals locally. Um, I run a kids area. I've, you know at, at a, a at Kendall Corner actually. Okay. A big festival, and they have two thousand kids that need entertaining. You know, I'll turn my hands to anything that sounds fun. Is
0: that all from
1: the experience of 2,000 Trees? That is me saying, 2,000 Trees is so much fun. I need to do more of this for my work. Okay. And it was a challenge to myself in 2012. If work, if 2,000 Trees is this much fun, it doesn't feel like work, Mm -hmm. is that just because it's my festival or is it because I need to be in events? And it turns out it's because I need to be in events. I mean, events is largely people. Yeah and whether they're customers or um, bosses or uh, colleagues or or whoever it's working with lots of people and I think that that is something I really enjoy Um, as well as obviously the stress of oh my god there's so much to do and so little time I think I do thrive in that
0: these other events jobs are these just their jobs that are promoted that are advertised that you apply for or is this been a little bit of legwork and marketing and self-promotion and business development on your end saying I'm interested in getting involved in this do you need someone like me it definitely started with the latter
1: it was me sending out um, doing my LinkedIn profile which was like the best I could do for a CV and sending out my email to people and contacting anyone I knew who in the events industry who we'd worked with through two thousand trees and saying, right. "Do you know any work coming up?" And, and so you did it the
0: way I that we all tell every single student. I did to do it. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so it was cold calling on people I'd never met, and I got my first ever freelance gig was the Cheltenham Literature Festival. Ten days work. Um, they then hired me for their other festivals, Jazz and Science, and I've been doing all three of those for the last five years. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome, and I live in Cheltenham, so it's on my doorstep. Um, word-of-mouth people saying, this person's contacted me about this work and I can't do it, We've, I thought of you, that sort of stuff. Um,
0: yeah, it's entirely American. Would you say events is very much a business that thrives on the word-of-mouth thing? It feels yeah. like it is. From someone who's never really worked in it, it's a case of yeah. if you do good in certain places, word gets around, and that if somebody in another festival or event needs someone to do that, they know who the best people are to do it. I think
1: that is uh, a meritocracy in the the nicest possible way. Uh, It's a network. If somebody asks me for a recommendation of event manager, I go to my phone and I look at people that I know who are in my phone book and I will recommend based on what they need. Um, I'm not going to go out to the wider world and say, is there anyone out there who I don't know who would like this job? until I've exhausted people who I know can do the job and with my contacts. Mm-hmm. And equally, it feels like a much smaller world now um, with the nine different events that I go to, similar suppliers crop up. Oh, I saw you at this event. So you mm-hmm. do start to get to know people. Um, and, and it's important just to build that network. And, and this is a cliche from my time, and maybe it is a bit old school, but I still believe that this is the case. And, and aside from the sort of uh, glass ceiling students need to go and get work experience to get a foot in the door of understanding what the job is so that they can then get paid work and um, so for example 2020s we've got people with us since the very start and uh, one in particular runs our entire artist liaison operation um, Sarah turned up in the very first year and said can I help and she and I got everyone in through the gates did the entrances through a tiny gazebo mm-hmm. um, and she was brilliant and very helpful, very uh, ideas-based. How can we solve this problem? So we then sort of said, well, we need to split this into sort of like one entr- main entrance for customers and then a separate sort of artist liaison entrance maybe. We learned by making mistakes. Mm-hmm. She now has grown that and, and and doesn't want to go. She has a full-time job. She <laughs> she comes every year and helps, and we pay her for that, and she's brilliant. I mean, she built that system, if you like, with us, and and she's not going anywhere so how do we then say to someone who's might be qualified we'd like you to come and you know it's the same with all of the volunteers who come they then get more responsibility if they want to come back they grow through their time at the festival and then once we trust them and know them and they've learned from the way we do things which isn't that different to anywhere else I don't think then they will get paid work it's we don't draft anybody in is what I'm saying (laughs)
0: What's the worst thing about your year, especially when it comes to the events and the festival? What's the worst thing, or what's the the hardest part? I
1: really enjoy being in a field. That's the main thing. And so for 11 and a half months of 2000 Trees, it's a virtual festival. I think the hardest thing is all of this time now, which I failed to explain adequately, of, of all the jobs that need to get done before the festival happens. So it's rushing and working late and just cramming in all of the admin that makes it happen all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes Yeah, yeah. that's probably the most tricky in terms of work-life balance um, I love the festival I love the glow afterwards of a job well done and hopefully you always get that you know you don't want things to go
0: wrong um, yeah that's that's about it I mean so the the administrative the setup the until it's actually a physical thing yeah. is is the worst thing is the, dip, the hardest part and therefore the best part i'm guessing is watching it actually happen yeah 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 that is that is definitely true if it were possible to take
1: a year off and just enjoy our own festival that would be awesome like living the dream but we we run it as well so that that can never happen but um yeah it's all the prep that goes in that makes it happen that um is it's worth doing and you forget once the event comes around how hard you work all the time May particularly is a brilliant month for not sleeping <laughs> just watching the days get longer and you not enjoy yeah them. there's something in the psychology of that I'm sure where post event you get like this I called it a glow but this sort of special feeling and you forget how hard it was to get to that point you just remember that point it's like when you run a race and you get to the end of it you're like you know stick your arms in the air. yes I did it you forget the miles that led up to that Mm. point and i think that's um why we keep doing it you remember that rosy glow after it happened cool thank you very much indeed oh you're welcome
0: and here is my special extra little bit with andy ray yeah the festival went really well i thought two thousand trees was
1: um A really really good year for us and uh, the audience too. I thought everything about it went as smoothly as it could from an organizing point of view. Um, We were really really pleased and the weather was great and we had 10,000 people enjoying themselves and when we put just the headliners on the main stage with nothing else playing we um, sort of created an extra special atmosphere that we haven't had down there before with thousands of people um, really singing along to those those headliners it was it was a beautiful weekend for us it's a strange one to say everything went according to plan and i'm sure that along the way there were some hiccups but the big things certainly went according to plan and all the organizers were happy we were in good communication regularly and uh, enjoying ourselves i think um it's it's somewhere it's got to the point now it's our 12th year where we um can start to enjoy the event And we know that we've got the right systems in place to make sure everything runs smoothly. And it's a big old team that I have to be very thankful to that help it go according to plan. And, uh, yeah, it was a really special weekend. Obviously, this year we brought in cashless. And that's the scary thing because not everyone is ready for that. Um, Us as organisers, I I spent three or four months planning it. Um, Members of the public aren't that well versed in using it yet. Uh, at festivals particularly so it's a new technology in this country and there may well have been some resistance had we not got it right but pretty much everything went according to plan on that too Um, it was really fast at the bars and food vendors the um, traders seem to like it as well we get um, just a transparency between uh, between everyone, and, and it just makes everything really easy and flow more quickly for the customers. So it's quicker, easier, it was cheaper, so they didn't have to spend money on the cash points at site. And um, there weren't any major problems. So there were a couple of teething problems. It's the first year we've done it. Places where the Wi-Fi wasn't picking up as well as it should. But in the grand scheme of things, um, we were really, really, really happy. And I thought. Uh, hopefully it was definitely something we want to do again i think hopefully the audience appreciated it as well as a as a positive move for the festival there was one point when we thought we'd have to put the football on on the sunday so we on the wednesday night we're about to open the festival tomorrow morning we're going to have ten thousand people coming through the site and Wednesday afternoon we decided to put the football on, so we managed to rig it all up with the Wi-Fi and show it to everyone who was on site the day before the festival opened. So that's a, a few hundred traders, staff, crew, anyone who wanted to come on down. And we um, we all watched the football in one of the stages. Sadly, um, we didn't get through to the final, as I'm sure you know, and it was um, in some ways a slight relief because we had put in place for £21. Uh, a temporary event notice to show the football on a Sunday for just a few hundred people. So anyone who wanted to stick around after the 2000 Trees Festival could watch the football, the World Cup final. But it wasn't to be. And, um, you know, putting those plans in place, those contingencies for what would have been a historic um, weekend on top of the 2000 Trees Festival um, was, um, <laughs> was quite a challenge, but quite interesting too. It's just such a shame we didn't get to that place. Um, but with a tinge of relief that I could then just, on the Wednesday night, once we had lost, uh, just focus on the festival. And um, yeah, it, it it ranks, for that reason alone, I think, with the Wednesday uh, enjoyment, bringing everyone together on the site, um, it ranks as a really good 2000 trees. But on top of that, um, everyone at the festival seemed to be really enjoying themselves. I think the weather was really kind to us. The, the atmosphere when we just put the headliners on uh, with no other music on the other stages was was a really smart move and um, the lineup uh, you know every year I think the lineup is amazing and and every year we seem to up our game on that and I, I just from a personal point of view, I felt like we as a team of six organizers and all of our friends and family and all of the crew and the suppliers and everyone who works on the site knows it um, I, I feel I feel like it was a really special. Special atmosphere.
0: Massive thank you to my guests this week. It's always a pleasure to talk with these people that know so much more about their particular area of the business than me i'm learning so much along the way if you would like to get in touch with this week's guest andy ray uh, please do message me via the podcast at behind the business pod at gmail.com you can also find the pod on instagram at behind the business pod And soon there will be various other places such as Facebook and the like. Um, Yes, find me on Twitter at Danny Champion. Um, And yes, thank you very much for listening. Please do email any questions to the show. I'm still really hoping to get a listener questions podcast or two done for over the summer and if anybody has any requests any any ideas about future guests I have a number in the works at the moment but please do get in touch via various assortment of means um, and let me know who I should reach out to Uh, cheers thanks